Mita has grown to become a large, dynamic, international organization comprised of thousands of members and supporters across North America and Europe. Mita believes its work is not done until it is proven to be sustainable, replicable, scalable, and measurable. Lauren joined Mita in September 2010 to manage Mita's new program on rice and textile value, change, value chains that was launched in 2011 in Ethiopia. He has extensive international experience in agricultural value chains and agribusiness development, including work in South America, Eastern Europe, and Africa. Lauren pioneered the value chain approach in fruit drying and exporting from the Republic of Armenia. In Romania, Lauren owned and managed his startup produce company growing, packing, and supplying fresh and frozen vegetables to supermarkets, restaurants, and open-air markets. Lauren later joined the United States Agency for International Development to design innovative public and private partnership ventures in cotton and oil seeds in the conflict region of northern Uganda. Lauren earned a master's degree in international development from American University. He enjoys rock climbing and opening new unexplored routes, trekking, music, most sports, and keeping up with four fascinating daughters. Join me in welcoming Lauren Hostetter. Thank you very much. I'm going to be doing some PowerPoints and, and uh, slides here. So if you need to adjust a little bit to see the screens, feel free to move a little bit. Uh, before I get started, I'm going to need two volunteers. Two volunteers? I got one. I need another one. It's not going to be too radical what I'm going to do with it. You can stay seated. Need one more volunteer? Great. Got two. I'll call you when I need you. A lot of us in our faith has been taught about poverty, that we're supposed to have some kind of a response. A meaningful faith has a response to poverty. That's true with Christianity. It's true with many other religions. For example, one of the verses, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? 1 John 3.17, and there's others. But how? What? If we're supposed to have pity on people, what does it mean? Beggars up there, just throw some change. Is that helping somebody? Is that demeaning? Or is that helping? Is that what Jesus meant? A lot of us like to bring back pictures, pictures of faces. There's a face to poverty, and there's something charming about a face. It communicates so much. There's dreams and aspirations that kids have, especially kids. You know, how can you turn down a face like that? It just captures so much. All kids want to go to school. They just aspire and dream about school if they can't go there. And in a way, it's so hard for me to come here and see sort of how our society seems to demean the value of education. But for there, every kid aspires for school. This particular child, she, her family was doing very well, and then uh, there's often just one event that can often make the difference in one family. When I think about a, a child, you think about a beautiful cup, and it's hard, durable, 
pretty tough, and you think about the potential. Is it half full or half empty in each child you look at? But for many children, it's not even a question about whether it's half full or not. The floor is a hard reality of poverty. And once a child is born or experiences poverty, they can never be the same. It has permanent impact. Again, this child, in her situation, her parent died in a car accident. It was enough to turn a family from somewhat prosperity into poverty. Many children face uh, conflict. They see atrocities committed, warlords and people coming in, and a lot of violence. They're always affected. Many children have experience, especially girls, maybe are undernourished. They get meals after the other boys, brothers and sisters and parents get food, so they're always affected somewhat in their potential and uh, never really compensate. Child trafficking, child labor, kids are taken into, um, you know, long-term indentured servants. And uh, in Ethiopia alone, 200,000 a year girls going to the Middle East to work as domestics. So you might imagine I'm going to do this the whole, uh, the whole chapel here, dropping uh, and showing shattering mugs. Well, I don't know, how long will it take to get used to this? Um, I need my volunteer, please. Come forward, one of them, yeah, that's great. So your job is uh, to pick up the pieces here. I would like you to take one mug and try to restore it back to holding some water, okay? Just one of you, the other one you can wait. And you'll, there's, there's a bit of glue, there's a bit of tape, and try to get one mug back together again, please. Uh, again, we uh, just see so many uh, issues here that we see that are structural, that keep causing and creating poverty. Now, we have the other volunteer. One of you can come over here on this side, and you, you know what I'm... <laughs> You know what I'm about to do. I think you, you've seen the pattern. And your job is to keep this from happening. You, there, there's a pad or anything there that you might cushion the fall. I'm going to, yeah, 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 that's fine. And uh, again, uh, simple point. Uh, that's, you know, really, I, I, I don't think <laughs> you're gonna imagine it. And um, what I wanna illustrate is really, you know, you can pick up pieces and try to restore lives. A typical humanitarian assistance worker goes in and after disaster and tries to pick up the pieces of lives. A development worker, by contrast, is trying to work at some of the structural problems that keep things from happening. Now this illustration made this look very difficult, this look very easy. It's not really that way, this is really difficult, but anyway, that's, that's about as far as my analogy goes. And since you guys were very willing, you, um, that's your, Reward. Thank you very much. For <laughs> so what is me to try to do? Well, we try to get at some of these structural problems. So what are the things that keep people going back into poverty and how can we do things, be innovative, be creative to solve these problems? 
What Meta does is try to look at a number of things. We think of business solutions. Business because businesses solve poverty in a lot of ways. This was formed 60 years ago when businesses got together and said, well, if we create a business that's building income, employing people, and it's a good business, this is really a creative solution. Meta was way ahead of its time, decades, and uh, still continues to be one of the leaders in the industry to trying to figure out solutions to poverty. We look at market linkages, business development services, and impact investing, in, and also innovative finances. So we do a lot of things to help build entrepreneurs. I'm just going to take you a little bit because of the, some of the, the things we think about sometimes in, in some of the countries that we work are not very much reality compared to what's really there. This is Ethiopia, the land uh, source of the Blue Nile and a very vibrant, progressive city, Addis Ababa, among, uh, like a lot of other cities in Africa, just very growing, a lot of trade, a lot of business, a lot of innovation. What we try to do, well, and then, then there's also poverty. There's some of the remote areas people really struggle to get their products to a market and get, get income and, and put food on their table. What MEDA will do is look uh, at opportunities, go to the government of Canada, to the United States, uh, DFID, USAID, and try to obtain resources and match some of their own resources and, and initiate a project. So here's one that I was part of, a five-year project in Ethiopia, funded by the Canadian government and the U.S. Department of Labor. About $15 million was brought in, uh, including MEDA support. We worked on two value chains, rice and textile. I brought a few of the textile pieces there from Ethiopia. And our goal was to try to get 11,000 households to do at least double their income. This is my staff, young staff of uh, various from finance and business that we brought in to initiate the project. We worked in these two areas for rice on the, on the uh, western part of the country. And then in the highlands, we worked in the textile industry. When I talk about a value chain, here's what I mean. It's really taking and diagnosing a system of value added from raw materials all the way to the marketplace. It involves a lot of things. It involves business, technical skills. It involves the flow of financial services. So we diagnose all of this, look where the gaps are, and then try to reconstruct where those gaps are. When we actually put a, a certain kind of uh, industry here, you can see the, over here, these are the, the producers. Here are the raw input suppliers, raw cotton, and or you know, they're dying and processing some of the cotton. Then we look at the traders. The traders often exploit the weavers. The weavers don't know the market prices. The traders do. They kind of uh, manipulate the situation and make a lot of, of profit. And sometimes, in this case, many of our weavers actually lost money on some products because they didn't have any bargaining power. And then you look at some of the exporters and the high-end designers that we worked with. So that's what we call a value chain. Now, if you look at the typical uh, way we used to approach doing development, we would have a um, cluster. Sorry, I'm kind of pointing to this screen, and, and maybe you can switch here with me. But uh, the, typically, we, we looked at 
farmer groups and we said, you know, a million farmers, how do we work with this situation? We're going to have to work directly with these farmers. We look at some kind of a process, processor there and then there's a market. So we figured out that you had to not only help a farmer produce a good carrot, but you had to find a good market for that carrot. And until you did that, they were no better off. But what we didn't do well is we started working with all these farmers. We started to train them, provide extension seed, tools training. And well, some of them we found a market, some of them marketed somewhere else, fine. And uh, in that situation, they, the market maybe stayed the same, the processes maybe stayed the same. And we had to go around and monitor. So if the farmers didn't produce much, we had to go back and, you know, why did you continue to do it the way you did? Why didn't you uh, take our advice? And it, the burden was on us to force, enforce the change. What Mita's figured out is that, well, why should we? Why, why should Mita, why should we be running around monitoring? There's other people that have much more to gain by monitoring and being involved, so why don't we exploit that process? The people who have a business reason to do that, let them do that for their own reasons. So that's what we do. We start here, instead of working directly with the farmer, we look at the miller or a processor, somebody in that uh, small business enterprise, we let that person uh, build their capacity and provide, get access to finance, get some training, and then they start investing down into the farmers. They'll have a lead farmer, a lead agent, pay a commission, that lead agent and the farmer then enforces the change and starts doing the training at the farm level, and, the six, and then they'll provide credit transport, services, things to the farmer so we don't have to, right? And then what happens is they get this commissions, they then deliver produce, and then they're rewarded if they're successful. So we can sit back, we can enable this process, and we don't have to sit there and try to make everything happen. What that does is allows the miller now to make some rational business decisions. He knows what's going to come back. He can now start to plan his marketing. He expands and the market expands. So that's what we try to do, is expand the, the size of the, of the pie that everybody can start taking a bigger, bigger share into that pie. And we also work at interdependency so that people now have a vested interest to helping each other improve and increase because it comes back and helps them all. So again, what we do is we really focus on that small business. Who's the entrepreneur in there? It's not the poorest of the poor sometimes that we're working with. Sometimes it's those that are a little bit able to take risk. We work with them and they can expand. So these small businesses, the processors now, are, are looking at upgrading a piece of equipment and at first it makes no sense for them to do so until we look at that supply chain. And if we get them to understand and build the supply chain, now they can start to make better decisions. So in this case, they're starting to finance and purchase on their own some of this equipment and pay, uh, you know, pay for the lo loans for that equipment. Furthermore, we said, uh, you know, really it's about building their capacity. If they're going to grow and they're going to continue to expand their business, they've got to learn a lot of skills. This is Hashim. Hashim has uh, had one mill and eventually he, he came to us saying he really was... Uh, felt like he was missing something, he didn't know anything about marketing, he wanted to learn some skills. So we really uh, worked with all of these processes to teach about marketing. 
engaging with the consumer, looking at quality control. And uh, he said this is the first time he's ever met a consumer. Before it was always just a 100-pound bag, uh, got loaded in a truck, got sent off to market, and that's, that's all he ever found out about his product. Uh, but in this case, he said uh, he wants this experience. So we helped him set up demonstrations and booths and taste tests. So here he was now getting feedback from his product, and he started to take a lot of pride in this. And he said for the first time, he really started understanding that he wanted to take pride in his commodities and, and improve it. He uh, since has upgraded in about a year. He's upgraded to four different mills. Each mill uh, supplies about 500 farmers now that he has direct relationship with. So right there uh, with one entrepreneur, we're now engaging some 2,000 farmers. And now he started exporting to South Sudan. This is Asarese. Uh, she's a widow at age 52. She has five children. Her husband died, and since then she was all, always uh, in poverty. She could never really feed her children. They basically had one to two meals a day. She had about two acres of land, but she couldn't farm it. She didn't have the resources or the capital or the experience, and so she just sharecropped it. Somebody came in and farmed, and she got half the produce uh, just for letting out her land. She didn't qualify for a project. She didn't, hadn't been farming, so she was basically uh, denied opportunity, but she, she was persistent. She kept coming back and saying, no, I'm going to do it. I don't care if I didn't farm before. This is my one opportunity to make a change. In our project, we started changing how people plant. Instead of broadcasting seed, you plant in rows, you pay attention to the spacings, you do a number of things that will really make the impact. But people were very skeptical. Most farmers, especially male farmers, would just uh, take a a pretty proud stance on the way they used to do it. And they, they, the, the, the ability for them to take the recommendations were, were pretty tough. But she embraced it. She said, this is my chance. I can't, I can't afford not to do it. So against everybody's recommendations, they told her not to participate, not to, not to try this. But she continued to persist. Even then, as, as she first started planting, it looked pretty bad. The, the spacings were pretty wide, and most people said, she's going to fail. She's only going to get a quarter of the crop that she thought she would get, that she expected, or that we recommended. And uh, each time we went out, though, uh, you started to see what was happening as these bunches of rice started to expand and grow because of this better spacings. And so we'd come out here, and she just got really, really uh, excited. Uh, starting to count how many, how deep these clusters were and predicting how much grain she was going to make. So she became a very vibrant proponent. She uh, saw that this was some of the recommendations and that she could uh, really benefit by the relationships with these millers. So this is the impact on, on the personal level. But in some ways it wasn't direct. We worked through entrepreneurs connected them in the value chains, and then they would now invest down into some of the producers. In the textile sector, much the same thing. Uh, these are weavers in the south part of the country. Weavers are very low, uh, considered very low class. Uh, they are, uh, for some reason, they're, they're isolated but they're, and, and not very well educated. They um, don't have connections to the market. So a lot of the traders, again, take advantage of this situation. 
And in turn, then the traders try to reduce the quality, try to do things to cheat on, on the quality so, so that they can, can uh, try to take advantage of prices. So it's, a, again, a very antagonistic relationship between the traders and the producers. So what we do is, again, where's our entry point? What can we do creatively as a business and try to take, uh, help people to see a different way of doing business? You can see some of the designs here are pretty, pretty strong. You know, it's nice for, for a little piece of souvenir, but really the, the market is very small and they were not getting much money for this. What we did, again, is identify some high-end designers. This woman here, Fakirte, is, is exporting around Africa to Paris, to Canada. We helped her really expand her market to an online distribution system. She kept getting orders and couldn't fulfill them. She would turn orders down because she wasn't sure that she was going to get the quality and the quantity when she needed it. So she was afraid of her reputation and only did small custom orders. So we helped her kind of devise a new business plan, gave her access to, to investment, to, to finance, and then she could now start to build up her business by connecting straight to the weavers and help do training straight with them. So she, again, we said, well, why should we train weavers? Let her go down and do some business skill training, let her do technical designs, and she went down and spent three days straight with the weavers organized them into producer groups, and then identified some lead weavers. The lead weavers would be sort of a master weaver. We would set them up as a small entrepreneur. He would then hire other weavers, and then he was responsible for quality control and delivery. This is Bolette. Bolette uh, was a, started weaving when he was six years old. He was sent to Addis Ababa. It's a day's journey away. He lived with a distant relative, and since age six, he was in a, a weaving industry, weaving 16 hours a day. He spent his whole life weaving, but he was really impassioned with weaving and became very, very skilled. Eventually, he came back to the mountain area, and uh, we, we found out about him. And again, he was, just had no ability to really control and, and build his own business. He was only weaving piecemeal for, for other people. Through some of our training and exposure to Fikirte, he became empowered. He, he really started to build some of his own designs and then started to build up a business of some 12 to 15 weavers that he would engage. He would train them and build them up and then make sure that they were also getting a profitable. We got a big order from Ethiopian Airlines. We were producing some 7,000 pieces like this. So again, this started to really in, uh, expand this whole value chain. So again, now everybody in this, from traders to, to producers, we're all starting to benefit from, this, from these deals. What Bellete said is uh, that, again, this, this really drove him because he, he could now see a real future. And it wasn't just simply for the day, but it was now starting to build a plan and be connected to people that he could Start to, start to invest and see something that it wasn't just meeting his daily income, but he could grow and, and produce for the future. He started innovating, he started building up new designs, and uh, you know, one of the things that he said for us is that you can't have business without trust. You have to have trust 
and integrity, and without that, you can't do business. And this was really, we take that for granted, but there, uh, it was really revolutionary for them to say, we've got to have these relationships in in the business world. So what I often like to think of is that Mita is building peacemaking in the business world, that we've really changed, radically changed how they're doing business and how they're doing their relationships. So I come back to this question, well, how do we help the poor? Do we throw some change at a situation? Do we help somebody in the short term? Or do we think about long term? Do we do emergency or do we do structural things to help people so that they're not falling into poverty? These are complicated questions, things I think about a lot. But how? Well, Jesus didn't put any limits, did he? He said, pay attention, give to the poor, don't forget the poor. I like that, no limits. Mita is, doesn't have many limits either. I think, they're, they're, again, they're on the, on the forefront of a lot of innovation. Mita's not only working with the enterprise and businesses, they've up, upgraded it. Not only are they working on a value chain, now they're looking at impact funds. Well, they've been doing this, but we're, we're doing, again, new innovations here. We're setting up impact funds that are going around identifying companies that have the potential to have a social impact. So by investing in them, they can also bring some capabilities in helping those businesses improve how they hire women, children, and other labor practices, looking at environment and social and what we call governance. So we're getting in and working on management, changing the way companies are managed and governed and and developed. So here's a company that's working on wind and solar power, another company on foods, again, making them have a bigger and bigger social impact where they're at, microfinance. The other thing is that, that with, the, in, with the development of mobile technologies, we have things that are happening that, that we were never able to do before. Here's happening all over East Africa. In Kenya, a farmer now can request on a mobile device. He can request for a loan. An M platform will check the, check the history of that farmer and then sends a, a text to the, the dairy plant The dairy plant approves the loan. Uh, A transaction is initiated between a financial institution and the farmer can almost get instant credit within within an hour, he can get a loan. The financial institution then sends the invoice to the dairy, the dairy then uh, knows that history and then a loan is repayment. So now in a simple transaction, a farmer in the remote area of Kenya can now effect a a transaction within an hour. Same thing uh, in, in a supply chain. We have a farmer that sells grain at a kiosk. That kiosk has a digital scale. That information is uploaded, SMS sent. It's sent to the trader, to the, uh, to an exporter. That exporter can, can check uh, their database. Information is also sent to a financial institution. A payment is made, the, uh, the financial institution then invoices the trader. The trader now has a whole tracking system. They can verify from the point of, point of uh, receipt. Uh, they can now have a whole database. They can check when the truck gets to Nairobi, and now they can verify all of these payments. So it's an incredible, powerful technologies are evolving uh, really every month coming up. This is going all over East Africa. A lot of countries are talking about going cashless. 
uh, in five years and, and, and in some ways leapfrogging what we're doing here. They're not doing credit cards, they're doing all this on mobile phones. So it's fascinating technology. What I just say is, you know, when I was 20 years ago or so, people said, yeah, to go over and change your world, to impact in poverty, to impact in development, you should be a teacher, a doctor, or, or somebody in the service sector. Right now, I think that's very true, but right now, the, everything is needed here now, and I think there's so many possibilities to shape and impact the world way beyond what we used to think. So widen your possibilities. Right now, if you're in finance, there's a huge demand. And, and if you're in investment, an invest, interest in impact investing, huge demand, you can shape the world. If you're into ICT and technologies, just huge, huge demand. And I think our colleges and universities are not really preparing the next generation of people who really can take their skills out and, and make an impact. In Nairobi, there must be uh, hundreds of small uh, social entrepreneurs, 20-year-olds, uh, 30-year-olds coming there. Uh, they went to do a safari and they never left. They set up companies, they set up ICT companies, mobile technology companies uh, to finance impact investment. I mean, it, it's just a, a dynamic place. It's a little Silicon Valley there of, of, of people who are saying, I have skills, I have things that interest me, and while I'm doing that, I can do an impact. So that's really boils down to a more simple message here. Uh, widen your possibilities. Uh, take what you have. Explore. Innovate. Is observe. And then just do that over and over and over again. Never stop. Explore. Innovate. Observe. I think uh, simple reason. We didn't have any constraints uh, because we were never told how. So use whatever you can to innovate. Innovation is really not a great new idea. It's really taking an idea and transferring it. So I challenge all of you, whatever your, science, whatever your interests are, your studies, uh, take it, apply it in a new way. Explore, innovate. Thank you very much. My name is Michelle Horning, and I'm chair of the business department and professor of accounting. And this evening, we will be hosting Lauren for another presentation uh, with the local MEDA chapter in uh, this building in the Fellowship Hall at 7.30. So you are uh, warmly invited to attend that presentation, learn more about the projects, and learn more about MEDA. Thank you. Have a good day.